This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you ROCK, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs. Free to residents, ROCK empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to the ROCK content is free for residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nails It Ortho podcast. And you're tuned into our board, so that's our OIT review series. And let's just go ahead and hop into today's episode. We're continuing some adult reconstruction. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Um, and so what are some, I guess you could say more kind of risk factors or potential causes for total hip arthroplasty instability? Uh, so the, uh, kind of one that will probably get tested on is prior hip surgery. Like you just said, for any, uh, revision surgery you do on a hip, whether it is something that involved a total hip or uh, let's say, uh, like I just had a patient with a uh, femoral head fracture dislocation um, when he eventually needs his total hip, because I know that his femoral head is going to go on to AVN. I'm going to be worried about total hip instability in that guy because he's already dislocated his hip. He's already had surgery on his hip. So any prior hip surgery is going to increase your risk for dislocation. Um, female patients have been shown to have increased, uh, hip stability, uh, whether that's, uh, ligamentous laxity, whether that's, um, kind of just the position of their hips and their, uh, native anatomy in needing maybe a little bit more offset, um, because of just innately having wider hips than, than most males, you might need to increase their offset to improve their stability. And then one thing that they'll talk about a lot, and you'll hear your attendings talk about is uh, implant position, because one, that's something we can control. That's, that's like the first thing that we can control is uh, the cup version, the cup abduction and the femoral version. So Ideal cup version is going to be uh, anywhere between like five and 25 degrees. Um, usually they'll, they'll be like, oh, I want it to be 20 degrees abducted or 20 degrees inverted and 40 degrees abducted because the ideal cup abduction angle is around 30 to 50 degrees. So if you kind of just sit there in the middle of both of those, so like 15 to 20 degrees of antiversion and 40 degrees of abduction, you're going to be in a good position for most patients. And then they'll talk about the combined version of around 30 to 40 degrees. So that's talking about the antiversion of the uh, acetabulum and antiversion of the femoral component. If you are at 20 degrees of version for the uh, acetabulum and 20 degrees of version for the femur, then you have reached your ideal combined version of 30 to 40 degrees. Um, decreased offset and leg length. Uh, so as you decrease the offset, you're bringing uh, the hip or I guess the greater trochanter 
closer to the pelvis. And when you bring the greater trochanter closer to the pelvis, you uh, decrease that abductor uh, moment and uh, increase the laxity. And so you have an increased risk of dislocation. Um, and then the uh, leg length, if you make them shorter on that side, then all of the surrounding uh, soft tissue structures that are responsible for um, keeping that hip stable is going to be more lax than not. So I'm not saying you should lengthen the leg by any means, but you definitely should not shorten them if your primary concern is stability. Um, and then you can also get like femoral neck impingement against the acetabulum. It's not their native anatomy. So you have to make sure you're taking off all of those acetabular osteophytes, femoral neck osteophytes, and clearing out any of the not necessary soft tissues so that when they do move their hips through a range of motion, they're not going to impinge on the bony or soft tissue structures and that impingement causes them to dislocate. Um, so let's see. There's also, a, there, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff for total hip instability. There's limited spine mobility. So if they have a history of fusion or they have a, a history of really bad osteoarthritis of their spine, they're, they're not going to be as flexible moving through their spine for certain things, just like, like sitting or bending over to tie their shoes or something like that. So they're going to have to move their hips more. So uh, if they are moving their hips more, especially with flexion and internal rotation for posterior hips, then you increase their risk for dislocation. And then any other like neuromuscular disorders, you're going to see a uh, increased risk for uh, dislocation just because those patients have altered uh, kind of neurologic muscular connections. And so like patients with Parkinson's disease or previous strokes, they're not going to activate their soft tissues as, as much as somebody who does not have those conditions and that increases their risk for dislocation. So you're, you're maybe considering like a, a hemiarthroplasty after a femoral neck fracture for a young Parkinson's patient rather than a total hip just because of their Parkinson's itself. And uh, so what's now, unfortunately we have a patient who's dislocated. What is the treatment for that dislocation? Yeah. So I think at least the acute treatment is, is somewhat similar to when you have a native hip that's dislocated is that you go and do a close reduction. So, you know, you get you sedate them and close reduce them. But if this is a patient that is starting to have, you know, recurrent dislocation, you know, they, they dislocated more than three times, I think is the number. Uh, you're going more down the lines of a total hip revision and you need to figure out why they're dislocated, number one, uh, and then and then proceed with a, a, a total hip revision. And so what are some, you know, surgical treatment options or I guess you could say techniques for revision total hip arthroplasty that is due to instability? So if, uh, if we're looking at their x-rays and their cup looks too vertical or their cup is flat, meaning that it's not anaverted enough, I mean, component malposition is probably the most likely reason for that. And so uh, going in and revising the cup position may be enough uh, to give them stability. Um, you can always uh, increase their offset. You can uh, 
very conscientiously increase their leg length because a bunch of patients, if you, it doesn't, even though we, we say like, oh, we can tolerate up to two centimeters of leg length difference without noticing, if they've gone the last 65 years of their life a certain way, and then you increase their leg by a centimeter, then they know that it's that, that whole two centimeter thing is more of a like congenital thing as you develop into uh, puberty and uh, mature into an adult. If you just give them a centimeter of leg length, they're going to feel like they're walking on like a, like a, uh, like a post on that leg because it's going to feel so long. So be very cautious to increase their leg length, but you, you can do that as a way to improve their stability. You can do something called a trochanteric advancement. If you have poor soft tissue tensioning, basically you are doing a greater trochanteric osteotomy and you're pulling that trochanter distally on the femur so that your abductor uh, musculature has increased tension. When you increase the tension through your abductors, that improves the stability. Um, if the components are otherwise in fairly good position, but they keep coming out uh, because of uh, polyethylene wear or something like that, you can always try using like a a lipped liner, uh, meaning that half of the, the liner has a increased posterior lip and that will improve their stability, or you can go to a constrained liner. Um, the downside to a constrained liner is your every, anytime you put constraint on an implant, you increase their risk for loosening, uh, not loosening, uh, loosening. And then, uh, <laughs> yeah. you can always increase the size of the femoral head to neck ratio, which decreases your risk for impingement. And so this episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. If you're an orthopedic resident, it's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS part one exam. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program. Rock is an all-in-one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at rock.aaos.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum and even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics. And remember, residents never pay to access Rock content. Get started today at rock.aaos.org. Uh, let's say, I don't know, you have a you have a certain component, but you only put a 32 millimeter head in, and they dislocate. You can always try and decreasing the uh, thickness of the poly and going up to like a 36 millimeter head, if that company has one to improve their jump distance and improve their uh, stability. So um, kind of to go over those briefly, um, change the components uh, to the correct anaversion and abduction that you would like to improve their stability. You can increase offset and perform a trochanteric advancement. You can cautiously increase their leg length, and you can always try going to a constrained liner, a bigger head uh, to neck ratio, or using something like a, a lipped liner to improve their uh, stability. And so uh, another complication is uh, heterotopic ossification. And so what are 
what are some things you can do about it? And which patient population has a uh, higher risk for heterotopic ossification? Yeah. So um, heterotopic ossification, or when you have, you know, you have more bone that's forming, um, you know, it's more common in males. And there's a, there's a whole classification uh, system to it. We don't, I don't think we included on here, but, you know, sometimes you can just have this little bit of bone that's ossifying, um, this a little bit of heterotopic ossification. Then you can have HO that that almost ankyloses the hip that goes all the way from the acetabulum to the femur. You can't move it at all. So there are different grades or amounts of heterotopic ossification uh, that you can have after total hip arthroplasty. And um, and how you treat this prophylactically, if you want to treat this, um, you can treat it with low-dose radiation within 24 hours preoperatively or within 48 hours postoperatively. And endomethacin, which is an NSAID, is another, uh, is another medication that could be used to prevent HO uh, formation prophylactically. That can be done postoperatively. And how you can treat this if it does develop is, is, is one, um, you, you allow the HO to mature. And then if this patient has severely limited range of motion and you got to take them to the OR and, and remove the heterotopic ossification. So um, that's kind of a quick, quick one, two on heterotopic ossification. Um, and, and we mentioned this uh, a little bit earlier, I guess I'll just say it again, you know, you talked about the limb lengthening, um, and, and how it's a little bit more common to lengthen uh, lengthen hips with arthroplasty than uh, than shorten them. And but one thing that, that you need to know is that if you lengthen the hips greater than four centimeters, um, this may cause some nerve issues. You know, definitely with our sciatic nerve. Um, so just ne- definitely need to know that. Um, and so, so what are some techniques? during total hip arthroplasty that could lead to an increased leg length. Like you're doing these things while you're doing the case. And afterwards, like, oh, this leg's a little bit longer than I thought. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's most most likely, I would say essentially not impossible, because I guess nothing is impossible, but nearly impossible to really lengthen a leg through the acetabular component. So yeah, the only way you can do that is if you seat your acetabular component really distal and it, I don't know, just that sort of stuff just doesn't really happen. Um, so I wouldn't even worry about lengthening the leg through the acetabular component, but things that, uh, can increase the leg length are, are, uh, like a higher cut on the femoral neck. And for, uh, those of you that have seen and done total hips, uh, as you do a higher cut on the femoral neck, basically what you're looking at is where the brooch is sitting compared to your femoral neck cut. So if you have a higher femoral neck, that brooch is going to sit more superior in the femur, but it's going to look normal to you as you're broaching. And then where you seat that implant is going to sit more proud than it otherwise would have as you, if you didn't make your femoral neck cut so high. And so you can increase their leg length through that portion and also, if your uh, neck cut is in the correct position, like uh, they typically say like one finger breadth superior to the uh, lesser trochanter, uh, if you just leave that femoral stem proud uh, and you don't seat it all the way or you broach too high and now your component is essentially too large for that femoral component, so it's going to sit more superior, you're going to 
increase their leg length uh, that way. And, and there's some techniques that you actually want that to happen. And so you may intentionally seat your component five millimeters proud because that's where you need the leg lengths to be. But for a standard total hip, a high neck cut and leaving the stem proud are the two common reasons to increase their leg length. And so what are some of the uh, uh, symptoms of impingement after a total hip? Yeah, so these patients can just have pain or they can have pain slash weakness with persisted hip flexion. Uh, and one of the ways that you can that you can diagnose these patients is actually you can do an ultrasound uh, injection and, and note that they have decreased pain. And I think we spoke about something similar to this when we we're doing our sports hip section uh, with impingement. So very, very similar diagnostic exams. And also one thing you can do is you can radiographically that, that can clue you in towards they maybe have an impingement is you get a cross table lateral of the of the hip and you can see prominence of the anterior edge of the cup so that may be something that includes you in um, towards these patients may having some type of impingement but again pain weakness with resistant hip flexion decreased pain after an ultrasound injection and then you 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 can note that they have a prominent anterior edge of the cup um, and, and so what is the treatment for you know hip impingement that is just bothersome to the patient they've tried non-operative things and they just it's just not getting any better what what's something that you can do a few things uh is uh i mean really like a iliopsoas tenotomy um if they have that kind of anterior groin pain and they're they're feeling that uh, anteriorly that iliopsoas tendon can be the cause of that and so doing an iliopsoas tenotomy and then yeah if you do get that cross table lateral and you see that the cup is really prominent over the anterior wall then a cup revision to a more anatomic location may improve their um, impingement symptoms because you are basically increasing their range of motion arc before they hit their cup because you're not seating it so uh, anteriorly. You're kind of moving that flange posteriorly and you're um, improving their uh, range of motion to impingement. And um, these are these next two questions are uh, kind of key questions to know for your boards and for the OITE. What are the number one causes of early and late uh, total hip revision. Yeah. So early is going to be infection, infection, infection. Um, so anybody comes in early, you're thinking, you know, month, couple months, you're thinking infection. If it's late, like three, four, five years down the line, you're thinking aseptic loosening. And I think you, those are some things that, that you just got to know. So again, early is going to be an infection and late uh, it's going to be aseptic loosening. And uh, so what are some of the classic, so-called classic symptoms of aseptic loosening? So the uh, first one is going to be startup pain. So it doesn't really bother them when they're at rest, but anytime they get up from like a seated position, they're going to have pain in their hip, but then it tends to get better as they uh, kind of bear weight and walk more. And then if they rest again and they start up, it, that pain comes back. Um, and then you uh, talked about it earlier, but if we're thinking that it is more acetabular loosening, they're going to have that classic anterior groin pain, maybe some buttock pain. Um, and then uh, for thigh pain, we're thinking more of the stem is because they'll, they'll differentiate it. They'll say, no, it hurts kind of 
here in my in my proximal thigh and not necessarily in my groin, then you're going to be looking for things like lucency around the femoral stem, pedestal formation, uh, subsidence, like all of that sort of stuff that we talked about um, earlier uh, in terms of like the radiographic evaluation. And then um, what are some of the uh, types of revision total hip stems? Yeah. So uh, we mentioned, we might have mentioned some of these a little bit earlier, but so one is you can have an extensively coated cylindrical um, stem. And again, these, these revision stems aren't, aren't necessarily getting their fit from the metaphysis. These are more diaphyseal, uh, you know, fixation or diaphyseal fit stems. And so you can have an extensively coated cylindrical stem, uh, which uh, can be made of cobalt chromium, um, but at least four centimeters of isthmus is required because it's a cylindrical stem. It can be a little bit different to control the amount of version that you're putting in the hip. And because we know version is very important to recreate. And also, or alternatively, you can also have a tapered fluted modular stem. So again, it's tapered. So at the top, it's a little bit, as you could say, wider and distally, it's a little bit more narrower. So that's why it's tapered and has little flutes on the side of it and modular meaning there are different components to the stem that you can uh that you can that you can put together in order to you know kind of dial your version a little bit better or control these different uh you know these patients that have these different morphologies or different deformities and for this this is typically made of titanium and at least two centimeters of isthmus is required and you know we're talking about these revision stems uh because we'll talk a little bit about revision Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nail Little Ortho Podcast. Now, if you have not, please go ahead and leave a review or a rating. It takes literally about 10, actually maybe about five seconds to do. And we have thousands of you all that are listening. And we only have about 100 and something reviews. And we're trying to reach 200 by the end of the year. So it would help us out a bunch if you could take five or 10 seconds to do that. And until next time, we'll see you next episode.